0: All right, here's what we're going to do. Um, We're going to get into Hebrews 11. Today we're going to be looking at the life of Moses. Over the past several weeks, months, we've been taking a look at um, Hebrews 11. In particular, um, the big mega theme, uh, big practical mega theme, I should say, that goes through the book of Hebrews is this picture of endurance, standing strong, being faithful to God um, in light of or in spite of opposition and not being taken out. Not having your legs swept out from underneath you, but being able to stand or withstand trials and temptations and hardships. The uh, larger context of the book of Hebrews is he's writing this book to a group of believers that have gone through hard times. Um, They start out following Jesus, following God, um, serving the Lord, and what had happened was things got difficult. Persecution started happening by way of, you know, physical persecution, we're told, little snapshots of what was possibly happening in verse, in chapter 10. That some people were having their houses broken into, their goods were stolen, uh, they were being abused, taken care of. Some people may have even been losing their jobs because they're like, I'm a Christian, you're fired. That was kind of like the whole ordeal that was going on. So some of them discovered that by sort of backing down or pulling away from Jesus and not being so forthright with Christ, uh, they can actually secure some sort of stability in their life or sort of reestablish some sort of momentum so they're not getting fired from their job, so they're not having problems in the workplace, so they're not having issues within their neighborhood. And uh, so they found that it was actually easier to sort of take a step back away from Jesus than to keep pushing forward to him. And basically what they're trying to do is find another foundation to put their life into, to plant their feet upon. And what the writer of Hebrews is basically saying is don't do that. Don't you know there's no other foundation? Every other foundation is broken. Every other foundation that you're going to try to put your feet upon is broken. It will fracture. It will break. And it will ultimately do the same thing to you that which is, it itself is doing. In other words, really you can put it this way. We are as durable as that thing which we love most. As that thing which we devote ourselves to most. You understand that? That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. We are that durable. So if we place our feet or place our lives or find the affections of our heart to be fixed upon or set upon things that are fragile, then we'll be fragile. If we fix our heart, the ultimate center of our lives, upon that which is broken, then we'll be broken. Do you get the idea? The writer of Hebrews is like, don't do that. You'll be miserable people. You'll be broken people. Maybe that's the reason why some of your lives here today are broken, fragile, fractured sad because you've placed your confidence, the greatest treasure in your life, upon things which are fragile, which are broken. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying is I want you guys to endure. I want you to be strong. I want you to have momentum. I want there to be a trajectory about your life which just keeps moving forward and is not being broken down. is not being pushed back. is not being controlled by every whim, by every undercurrent, by every undertow, but that you can withstand and be strong. And that's his whole point. He really wishes and desires for our success in life, ultimately knowing that that's found in God, and God's solution, which is Jesus. That's why it starts chapter 12 by saying, okay, let's consider Jesus. It's really his whole point. So the mega theme of Hebrews is Jesus. The practical mega theme of Hebrews is having endurance, confidence, in Jesus, so that we don't fall. So what I want to do right now, is I'm going to read uh, the section of Scripture that we're, we're going to be talking about here today, because the writer of Hebrews writes in such a way, especially in chapter 11, where he basically reminds the people whom he's writing. He's like, don't you guys know that everybody who've ever who's ever tried to live for God, who's ever followed God's pattern of life, who's ever followed God's reasoning or thought patterns, is going to find themselves in conflict with the world? They're going to find themselves in conflict even with themselves, with their own environment. There will be pushback. Expect it. But those who have confidence in God, those who trust God, even though what may appear to look like a path that leads to disaster, really, in actuality, is a path which God is trying to help you to avoid a disaster you don't see. You understand that? But we oftentimes don't believe that. We really don't. Because we, we're like a little kid that's convinced they know what's best. And even though dad's like, don't go play in the street, I promise you it's really not good. All right? We're like, no, it's best. Street is the best. That's the place where we want to play. And then we get hit by a car and it's over, all right? And the reality is we just we live like that. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, you guys have confidence in Christ. Look to Jesus. Realize Everybody who's looked to God, who's followed God's solutions, who's followed God's pattern of life, have always had pushback, have always found themselves in difficulty, whether it had been able, choosing to offer a better sacrifice, whether it was Sarah, who, she's 90 years old, she's going to have a baby, whether it was, you know, Noah, who was basically ordered to build an ark in the middle of Fresno. I mean, anyone, everyone, everybody had pushback. And basically his point is just trust God, because what may look like a disaster really is God trying to save you from a disaster that you don't see. Okay? So I'm going to read the passage, Uh, each of the sections, each past few weeks, we've been looking at the various cameos, various, you know, snapshots of these uh, people's lives, and today we're on Moses. So with that, we're going to jump in. Taking a look at the life of Moses. So if you guys have Hebrews chapter 11 open, I need to get there myself. And then we will read, beginning at verse 23, and about verse, I'm going to probably read verse 29. It says this, by faith, Moses, when he was born, he was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Verse 29, and I'll read this, even though uh, Pastor James actually will be teaching next week and be touching on this particular scripture. I'll read it now. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea, and if on dry, as if on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they had attempted to do the same, they were drowned. Let's pray. Father, we ask you right now that you would help us, as this is your word. We want your word now to take root and effect in our hearts and our lives. And we, for that to happen, God, we need your spirit. We need the power of your spirit to come upon us, to strengthen us, to enable us to open our eyes, to help us to see things that we're not normally prone to see. So we ask you, God, just give us the favor that we need. Uh, help me to be able to clearly communicate and convey your word, God, so it brings glory to your name and uh, reveals the path of joy for us to walk down. And we ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What I want to do right now is I want to basically take a look at the life of Moses as we looked at, and as we read. And in essence, what we begin to see is that through Moses' life, is there's essentially five major areas of crisis throughout his life. But with that being said, what we're going to begin to realize is that because the writer of Hebrews has in his mind this concept of standing strong in the midst of all this, he uses the word endurance. And I want to make sure that you guys understand the word endurance. Because it appears in chapter 11. It also appears in, I think, chapter 10. Uh, the word that appears in ha- uh, chapter 11 and chapter 10 are actually different. But they're both translated endurance. So they're very, very similar. I want you guys to know what they are. The first word that's basically translated as endurance in this particular chapter is katereo. And it basically means very similar definition what the other one. But I'm going to give you guys the other definition. Um, because it's the more common one throughout the New Testament. It's the word uh, hupomeno. And it basically means this. There's two words in there. The word hupo, we get the English word hyper. The word meno basically means to stand or to stand firm or to stand against. So you take the word hupomeno. It's the idea if you were to translate it almost literally or transliterate into the English. It's like to hyperstand. To hyperstand. And I think the concept of the picture that's trying to be conveyed here is that you stand against something that's pressing against you. I, I love the picture of, you know, when you go to the beach... And you go out in the water, you kind of waist high, chest high, kind of walk out in the water, just kind of hang out there. And have you ever just stood there, you let the waves tack you? And the whole point of the game is to just kind of stand there. You know, put your legs out, make sure that they're firmly rooted in the ground. And when the waves come, they beat against you, they hit against you, and the whole goal is to kind of stand. So when the wave knocks you and hits against you, once it goes past you, you're like still standing. That's the whole goal. That is hupomeno. That is hyperstanding. And that's the picture. And if you can imagine in your mind the concept of things coming against you, things pushing against you, things beating against you, things coming in opposition against you, and here you are hyperstanding. Whatever those things of oppression or opposition or pushback are, the goal, the purpose, the desire of the writer of Hebrews, ultimately the desire of God, is that you would hyperstand, that you would push against them. That you know the writer of uh, Romans. Paul says something like this. He says, I want you to be more than conquerors. Um, the same word is used, not as uh, hyperstanding, but it's basically the idea of super conquerors. Not just a conqueror. You know, not just a superhero, but a super superhero, right? And the writer of Hebrews doesn't want you to stand, just to hang out, just to loiter, just to kick back and do nothing. But in the midst of pushback in the midst of tension to hyperstand. That's the picture. And so he uses these various cameos and snapshots of men and women that have hyperstood. And Moses is one of those guys. Moses hyperstood in the midst of five crazy crisis moments in his life. The first of which we'll look at very quickly because it actually has to do with when Moses was first born. It had to do more so with his parents. I'll read you the story uh, in this particular context. Verse Uh, The first one in verse 23 says this, by faith Moses when he was born, it says uh, he was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and that they were not afraid of the king's edict. Um, We're told very little about Moses' mom and dad. We know that their names were Amram and Jochebed, Exodus chapter 6 verse 20 tells us that. Other than that, we don't really know much about them. They were from the tribe of Levi, which uh, other texts later kind of give us some sort of indication. That it was the, the tribe of Levi that was actually faithful to God during the times of sojourning, during the times of exile in Egypt. The rest of all the other tribes worshipped idols. Everybody else has sort of capitulated to the sinfulness of the, the, the empire there in Egypt. Uh, except the Levites. So here's the Levites. Jochebed and you know, his, his mom and dad. Basically they're holding on to God, seeking God, trusting God. So they're, you know, they have a little baby. And so what had happened was, while they're in the land of Goshen, it was kind of sort of like the slum area, slum lords, a slum spot of Egypt, um, these guys were sort of fle- free slave labor. Their job, their purpose had sort of become oppressed by the Egyptians. Their job was to kind of make the brick, form the brick, establish the brick, build all these buildings, build all these cities. That was their job, and it was, they didn't get paid anything for it. It was all that they had to do. They always had to work. They were slaves, It was horrible. Life was miserable for the Jewish people. But what had happened was they began to grow. Um, And their numbers became sort of a a point of contention and concern for the Pharaoh. So he basically said what we need to do is we need to sort of uh, beat down their morale, beat down their ego, make sure they don't think uh, that they can somehow outnumber us and overtake us. Let's kill every single one of their firstborn. So Moses was one of the firstborn, born to these two guys. And so they decided, rather than follow suit to what Pharaoh's edict is, we're going to save our little boy. And the way they saved the little boy was actually kind of losing him. They, they, they put him into a little kind of a boat and they shipped him off down river. Ironically enough, um, it, we're told that Pharaoh's daughter actually was out in the morning, hanging out, probably taking a bath or whatever. She sees the little baby down there and she brings the baby in. And she basically says, I don't do breastfeeding. So she says, I need to hire somebody to do breastfeeding. She wanted to make sure that baby Moses was well well taken care of. So ironically enough, she finds uh, somebody to take care of Moses, and it was his mom. And that's the story. It's the ironic story of God's providence. And so God miraculously establishes this whole thing, that even though uh, Moses' mom and dad had to give over their baby to God, just basically surrender it, God ended up giving it back to her. And so she ends up getting to raise Moses. I think mom and dad uh, probably poured into Moses' life. But whatever the case was, they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh, and so therefore they were willing to save the life of their own baby. The next crisis point that takes place in Moses' life is basically Moses choosing to be associated with a, with, with a foreign group of people. Here's this story in verse uh, 24. It says this, By faith, Moses, when he was grown, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So what had happened was, when Moses kind of, you can find all this in Exodus chapter two, what had happened was when Moses got a little bit older, we're told probably around age 40, Moses' life had sort of broken down into kind of series of 40s. The first 40 uh, was Moses raised up um, in the courts of Pharaoh, learning all that Pharaoh wanted him to learn, learning the education, being advanced and skilled in all you know, the, the major languages of the ancient world. Knowing all the, you know, the, the greatest techno- technology of the day. The sciences. The mathematics. All that stuff Moses no doubt would have been well trained in. Well skilled in. He was on a career path of success. He would have been a guy that everybody would have known. Uh, Moses literally had everything. So the first 40 years of his life. That was, that was Moses' whole life. So at pr- some particular point. Moses, we're not sure exactly how or when or why this particular thing happened, but Moses kind of came to some sort of conversion moment where he began to look to God, trust God, began to realize, you know what I really need to do is I'm not not an Egyptian. My people that I want to associate with are this foreign group of people that are foreign to me. So Moses basically makes his conscientious decision to associate himself with this people that's really foreign to him, even though by blood. He's connected to them. So he makes his decision to say, I'm not going to be associated with Pharaoh. Instead, I'll be associated with my people. So Moses goes out one day in the story. While he's hanging out, walking around, he sees a guard beating one of the Jewish people. And he's really bummed about that. So he walks up to the guard, picks up a rock, and whacks the guy in the head and kills him. So Moses is like, this is not good. So he buries him in a shallow grave. And so, what ends up happening was the very next day, Moses goes back outside and he sees Ju- two Jewish people fighting, kind of this little quarrel uh, at a coffee shop or whatever. And then he walks up to them and he's like, You shouldn't be fighting. And they basically respond to Moses sarcastically, like, What are you going to kill us, too, just like the guy yesterday? So, Moses realizes, you know, everything's been known. You know, this little thing that he may have thought was done in secret is now like on the headlines. Everybody's blogging about it, tweeting about it. Everybody knows what Moses has done. So, he's in a lot of trouble. So even though Moses has taken a step forward to try to associate himself with these Jewish people, he realizes he's got some issues going on here. So the first thing that Moses does is he realizes he's, he's, got, he's got a choice to make. Do I keep associating with Pharaoh or do I associate with my people? And so he makes his choice that I'll be associated with his foreign people. The third thing that we see is that Moses chooses suffering and rejection. Verse 25 says this, so rather... To be, or choosing rather to be mistreated. Some of your translations might say suffering. I think suffering is actually a better translation. He says, choosing rather to be mistreated or suffer with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, he considered the reproach of Christ even greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, so that looking to the reward. So the third thing we basically notice with Moses' life is that even though he goes out and he tries to defend one of his Jewish brothers, and ends up getting in trouble for that. He's rejected now. I mean literally he doesn't. He can't go back to Pharaoh's court. But you know an interesting thing is. That we know enough about those ancient autocratic nations. That if a son of a Pharaoh. Or a son of a grandfather who was a Pharaoh. Grandson. Did something like this. Committed murder. And was horrible. We know that there was enough. You know strings that could be pulled. Where you walk in. And you're just like look. I didn't mean to. Or I shouldn't have. And it was bad. But you know it's just a commoner. There. There's a million of them left. You know right. So no big deal your dime a dozen and and so it would have just been simply passed over but that's not what happens with Moses Moses realizes I've got a decision to make I can keep living in deception I can hide this thing I can cover this thing, I can cover my rear make sure that I don't get in trouble for this or I can associate associate with a group of people that have actually really don't even like me that much because he goes to them and they reject him So Moses literally is kind of in this quandary, like, what do I do I do? I don't have any place to go. I can't go back to Pharaoh's court. I certainly can't go live in the land of Goshen, because his people are afraid of me. So Moses basically makes his conscientious decision to choose a path of suffering over the pleasures of sin, over the pleasures of what Egypt had to offer. So that's what he ends up doing. It's kind of an interesting thing. He describes it as the fleeting pleasures of sin. So he says, I'm going to choose to suffer over this. This is one of the reasons why, we'll get back to this, why this makes Moses sort of an example. Because he's making this conscientious decision where he could sort of play the game. He could be the politician, right? The good politician that knows how to play his cards right, that knows how to cover his rear, that knows how to basically establish a safety net for him so that he doesn't have to pay any type of consequences whatsoever. He could do that. But he doesn't. He makes a choice to not go back to Pharaoh, to make amends, nor does he even go back to the Jewish people. So where does he go? Kind of leads us to the fourth thing. Basically, the fourth thing, we're told that, verse 27, by faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So basically, what we see is Moses is sort of on this career suicide, okay? Career suicide. He has everything. All the wealth, all the knowledge, or at least access to all the wealth in the ancient world. He's literally connected by way of adoption or family right to the greatest treasure house in the entire world. All right, I think about this. He's got all the knowledge. Uh, Moses would have lived like, the best politician, lived like the best rock star. He would have been the type of guy that when he walked downtown or hung out downtown, I mean, he drove, you know, probably the nicest chariots would have been, you know, equivalent to driving around in an Escalade. He had them all, he had everything. Everything you can imagine, that was Moses' life. So he chooses to follow God, to live in honesty, not in duplicity, but to live in honesty, following God, even though it looks like career suicide. Even though it looks like a disaster. Does he know where he's going? Not really. He doesn't really have any clue as to where he's going to be heading out. But the point that ends up happening to Moses, even though he doesn't know where he's going, even though he doesn't know where he's ultimately headed, he knows God. He knows God somehow as God is back. He knows God is somehow leading and guiding and directing. And so what Moses is trying to do is simply to be faithful to God, to follow God, in spite of the fact that everything may be looking like it would be disastrous. God was leading him. In this particular point, he ends up leading him to the desert, the backside of the desert. So Moses literally trades in his staff, or trades in his his scepter or whatever, righteousness that he's got, maybe working for the king's court, for the staff, to which now he's going to end up becoming a shepherd. For the next 40 years, we're told Moses was a shepherd hanging out in the backside of the wilderness, what would look like doing nothing. I mean, were there times that Moses kind of wondered, Lord, you know, I, I, I thought you called me to be a deliverer. If I'm gonna be a deliverer, it's kind of hard to be a deliverer, with no people to deliver in the back side of the desert. So Moses makes his conscious decision that even though he doesn't understand the fullness of what's going on, even though he's gonna live in the backside of the desert for 40 years, he's just gonna follow God. And the reality is, over the next 40 years, here's Moses, In a lot of ways, learning what it means to be human. I mean, Moses has lived for the first 40 years of his life kind of in this fantasy world. He had everything at his fingertips all the glories, all the treasure, all the beauties of Egypt could ever offer. For the next 40 years of his life, from age 40 by age 80, he's on the backside of the desert, learning how to suffer, learning how to deal with life's difficulties. Learning how to deal with stuff that's constantly fighting back, constantly kicking back, constantly mocking you. That was Moses' life. Maybe that's where some of your guys' lives are at right now. You kind of look at your life, you're like, I feel like I'm on a treadmill. You're not going anywhere. You feel like, I feel really far from God. I feel really distant. I feel like there's a lot of dryness in my life. You're in the desert. You understand that? You're in the desert, just like Moses was in the desert. You're in a place where, in a lot of ways, it's God molding you, God shaping You don't despise the desert. Realize it is the place, it is the place that God uses to mold us, to shape us. First 40 years of Moses' life, he learned how to be a deliverer by learning the ways of Moses, or learning the ways of Pharaoh, learning the ways of Egypt. The next 40 years of life, in a lot of ways, it was unlearning a lot of that stuff. It was unlearning what it meant to be confident in self. It was unlearning all sorts of things. He needed to be reprogrammed, deprogrammed, and then reprogrammed. That's part of what it means to be a Christian, is learning how to reprogram the way that we think, the way that we live, the way that we are, the way that we think about sin, the way that we think about things that maybe we used to do at one point, now we begin to look at them in a particular light and see them as sin. It's actually kind of an abomination to God, something that God hates. It's not something that God fiddles around with or messes around with, but actually God hates. He hates sin. And begin to realize how much it is that we need to unlearn and relearn. That's where Moses was, 40 years Backside of the desert, turned his back on all the glories of Egypt, and here he is, suffering, living on the backside of the desert. The final thing is this, we basically see, is that Moses ultimately was choosing to confront these powers that would be. Uh, Verse 28 and 29 kind of give us these little snapshots of them. Verse 28 says, by faith he kept the Passover and he sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch him. So the first great power that be, most of us are familiar with the story, was God said uh, when he was bringing Moses back, by this time Moses is 80 years old, he goes back into Egypt. He goes back to actually confront Pharaoh. It's a new Pharaoh this time. It's very possible. I mean, you, know, you guys saw the, like, what was it, the prince of Egypt? Was that about Moses or was that about Joseph? I can't remember. The cartoon, was it Moses? Okay. Yeah. It's been a long time since I haven't seen it. But you know, he goes back. And it's very possible. I mean, you know, I know the, the movie kind of makes it look like it could be his brother. Could be, I don't know. But imagine, wouldn't it be crazy if it was his brother? So the Pharaoh now, let's just say it's his brother. I have no idea. I'm totally in speculation mode right now. But just play with me. And anyways, here he is. He goes back into Egypt to confront the powers that be. And what ends up happening is basically like, look, let God's people go. The Jewish people. I know they're your free labor force, but let them go. God wants them back. He's redeeming them. He's buying them back from you. And Pharaoh's like... I'm not going to let them go. They're free labor. It would be foolish to let these people go. And so what ends up happening is sort of this massive showdown. Which ultimately leads to this even more massive showdown. Where God basically says, on one particular night, I'm going to cause the angel of death to pass over Egypt. The only people that will be able to withstand, or stand opposed, or stand against this great, mighty, powerful angel of death. Are those... Who don't operate according to their conventional wisdom, but operate according to the wisdom that I give. And God's wisdom is basically, take a lamb, slay it, and put its blood upon its doorpost. That's the wisdom of God. God says, the wisdom that will save you is not picking up an arm, pick, picking up you know some sort of a sword to fight the angel of death. If you do that, you will be defeated. The way that you defeat the great foe is by blood. The blood of an innocent lamb applied to your house, then you and everyone is, who's in that house will be saved. So Moses conquers and defeats this great foe. The second one as we see in verse 29, and by faith the people cross the Red Sea on dry land. Dry land. So Moses leads his people out. It's this big, massive, massive situation where here's Moses on either side are mountains, in front of him is the Red Sea, behind him is the greatest army of the world chasing after him with the you know the the most powerful um, technological weapons of the day. And here they are, basically all poised in position, facing Moses, and here he is. And God's like, listen, go forward. I was like, there's a huge, huge ocean in front of me. I can't go forward. God's like, raise your staff. It'll all be good. You know, I mean, it takes faith to actually think that somehow raising a staff is gonna like, release a trigger that's gonna part the Red Sea. Things just don't work that way. But again, we're not talking about conventional wisdom. Talking about God's wisdom. What God is asking Moses to do. Moses does this. Now does he conquer and stand up to and defeat ultimately the angel of death. But he ultimately ends up defeating the greatest powerful army on the planet. And here he goes. He literally goes into the Red Sea. You know what Moses does in the Red Sea? In the middle of the ocean. He hyperstands. He hyperstands. He endures. As if he's seeing God taking care, taking charge, taking control of the whole entire circumstance. That's what he wants for us to see. I want to wrap this up basically with two simple things as to how Moses was able to hyperstand. The first thing I see with Moses is that he regarded God. He regarded God. Take a look at verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth of the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. The first thing that Moses does is he remembered. The word regard basically means to remember. It's kind of a calculation word. It's the idea of basically considering something, reckoning something. Uh, It appears a lot in the New Testament. It's the exact same word that appears uh, in Philippians uh, chapter 3 verse 7 and 8. Some of you guys are probably familiar with it. Here's what Paul says. But whatever gain I had, he says I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So here's what Paul's saying. I, look, I had a lot of good stuff, a lot of good things that were going on in my life. But he says, today, now, currently, from this vantage point, in this position, I look at the accumulation of everything that I had, the accumulation of all the wealth that I had, accumulation of all the knowledge that I had, accumulation of all the religion that I had, all the righteousness that I had, all the abilities that I had, the gifts that I had, the talents that I had, the goods that I had. It says, I reckon, I count, I consider. Them is nothing but trash compared to Jesus. Let me make something real clear here. Christians are not ascetics, nor are we Stoics. Let me, let me explain what I mean. Christians are not people that basically depart from society, depart from culture, and say, then we just dismiss everything. We wipe ourselves clean from anything that's in the culture, anything in this world. That's not what Christians do. Christians shouldn't live like that. We shouldn't live detached from the culture around us. But what Christians do is they recognize that everything we have, our spouses, our kids, our careers, our homes, our cars, our multiplicity of televisions in our house, everything we have has its rightful place under the submission of Christ. And because we place them there, that means that we are the freest of all. We can be the freest of all people to use these things and not be trapped by them, not be controlled by them. They're not idols to us. We don't worship them. We're not held by them. We don't build our lives on these fragile things that break. You understand that? Christians are people that recognize the supremacy, the greatness, the power, the might of God. And in doing so, in doing so, he becomes the greatest treasure. And we reckon, we consider the vast worth the greatness of Christ. That he and he alone is our great hope and desire. He's better than anything that we can build our lives upon. Let me give you the way C.S. Lewis put it. Couldn't say it better than him. And no sermon's really complete without a quote from him anyhow. Okay, here we go. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward. And the staggering nature of those rewards. Promising the gospels. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but actually too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink, sex, ambition, when infinite joy is offered to us. We are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't even imagine what is meant by an offer of a vacation at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Here's what C.S. Lewis is saying. starts out and he says, we consider, he uses the same word, C.S. Lewis Lewis even uses the same language that the writer of Hebrews does. He says, we consider. When we consider, reckon, calculate, figure out how big and great our God is and the things that God can do and how much of a treasure God is, the reality is everything else, it's like the song says, "Grows strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's what we're saying. We're not saying that everything else is worthless. But we are saying that everything in comparison to Christ has a proper worth all under submission under Christ. Does that make sense? Because what ends up happening, if your center of value, if that which you love most, is something that's finite, that's breakable, that's fragile then you too will be breakable and fragile. Let me give you an example. If your ultimate center of value is being loved, if that's what you live for, you live for this ultimate thing of saying, I want to be loved. Now, in reality, really all of us are made that way. We want to be loved. But if the way that you find love is through relationships, say you're not married, you will always jump on the treadmill, trying to find another person to love you, to treat you with respect, to care for you. And you know what happens when that is the case? You are fragile. Because you are basing your center of value on a fragile guy, fragile boyfriend, and you will do anything to make sure that you're in constant relationship with him. Even sell your body. Give your body away. You don't even sell it. In that sense, prostitutes have greater sense in what they do. They make money. People who have love, and that's all they're looking for, give themselves away for free. And they're broken, they're fragile, they break. The point that I would make is this, is when your center of value is needing to be loved by someone, it even happens for people that are married. Sometimes people think, well maybe if I get married, everything will be fine. Not not if you make love into an idol. If you make love into an idol, if your center of value is you need to be loved, then you will even, while married, be looking for some sort of other source to give love back to you. This is why people even still, while married, can sometimes trade out wives or spouses. Or if they don't, they don't want to do that, if they don't want to take that step, pornography is the next best thing. Even if it take place even within having kids. I wonder how many times even women may want to have babies constantly because it brings, it brings a sense of love. Love comes from a kid. And when the kid gets old enough, let's have another baby because there is a sense of needing to have that sense of love constantly coming back. It's the center of value. When the center of our value, ultimately, supremely in our life, we are only as durable as that thing which we love most. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, guys, Moses saw God as being the greatest. Moses loved God as being the greatest. That's why Moses was able to hyperstand. And his whole point is if you want to hyperstand, you got to make certain that your life is built on a foundation that is durable and lasting and strong and infinite, not finite. Omnipotent, not impotent. You got to build your life on God and his solution, Jesus. That's his point. The second thing that we see is this, and we'll wrap it up here, is he saw God. Take a look at verse 27. He endured as seeing him who was invisible. It's kind of an interesting little statement the way he kind of puts it. He saw him who was invisible. I mean, we know later on in the book of Hebrews, he actually describes uh, God as being this invisible God that no one has ever seen God and lived at any time. So we've got a kind of, little bit of an interpretive challenge here. What does it mean to see God uh, if we can't see God? I think what he's basically saying is that he saw God in what God had done, in God's works, in God's word. And what God had done. Now remember Moses, you know, he wrote the first five books of the Bible. And so I, don't, I don't think he had written anything at this particular point. So he didn't have like a pocket Bible to whip out. Start reading. He was hanging out on a rock. He's like doing his devotional time. His divas kicking back in the Sinai Peninsula. And he's kind of reading the Bible. And it's like, oh, I wrote that. It's good stuff. It's not what he's doing at all. At all. And so all he has is what he's seen God do in the past. All he's got. It's all he's got. He's got God's word. He's got God's works to look at, to understand, to be reminded of. And that being said, he basically realizes that he's got to preach to himself. He's got to see God. And I think the way that he sees God is by reminding himself what God has done. In other words, he's doing exactly what one of my favorite preachers, a guy by the name of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, described. Is that he says, we got to preach to ourselves. In other words, we got to all learn to be good preachers. That means we preach to ourselves. Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about, he says, all of us hear voices. And the voices that we oftentimes hear are voices that come to us, and they say things that sort of put us down. They describe us as being you know, losers. They remind us of the things that we've done yesterday that we failed to do, things that we should be doing tomorrow. What ends up happening is we get sort of this burden that gets mounted up on our shoulders, and we, don't, we feel nothing but the weight of the sins of this world rather than finding freedom from God. And so basically what he's trying to say is that we need to preach to ourselves to remind ourselves of what God has done. Remind ourselves of what Christ has done. That's what Moses did. He's preaching to himself. And through preaching to himself, he's seeing God. And as a result of that, he's able to walk away from the treasures of Egypt. Because of that, he's able to associate himself with a group of people that are going to deny him and reject him anyhow. But you know, the reality is for every single one of us in this particular room, all of us, we can see something that Moses didn't see. We actually have a better vantage point we have better perspective than Moses had. Because for us, we can look back, and what we see is we see one who liked Moses, but even in a far more infinite way, left not a palace of Egypt, but a palace of glory, and entered into a world. We see one who liked Moses, who associated himself with not just a tribe of people, a small group of people, but Jesus takes upon himself flesh and bone, becomes a man. God God incarnate becomes a man in the flesh. Jesus steps into our world from glory into this trailer park we call planet Earth. That just like Moses was choosing to be rejected and despised, going to a nation even though he knew it was going to mean something quite difficult, maybe even a death, there was one like Moses who actually did enter into this world who was despised, who was rejected, who suffered at the hands of those to whom he came to save. We see Jesus, ultimately what looked like disaster in his life. The cross looked like a story of disaster. The life of man in his mid-30s had great promising career ahead of him, great speaker, drew audiences, could sign book deals, Go on Oprah. Everything seemed to be great for Jesus' life. Until age 33, everything was cut short. It looked like disaster. But in reality, only in this case, it was through the death of Christ that God allowed that to bring about an avoidance of disaster, not ultimately for him, but for us. It was through the cross what looked to be the greatest disaster actually brought about An ability to escape the greatest disaster for all. That's what Jesus came to do. We look and we see Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews is basically like, look, I want you to hyperstand. I want you to stand strong. Jesus hyperstood. Moses hyperstood. Even though it looked like everything was pressing against and opposing. Even though it looked like following God's path looked like it led to a disaster. The reality of it was... Because God's path actually brought about an avoidance of a disaster we just didn't see. You are only as durable as that thing that you love most. What is it? What do you treasure most? What's the center of your life? What do you value most? What's at the core of it all? That's how durable you are. Do you understand? This is why it's so serious. Do you you understand it's because God loves us that he does not want our lives to be built upon something that is shattered and broken and finite. Some of us keep going on and on in our lives on this broken treadmill. And it keeps breaking down, and we keep breaking down, and we keep losing, because the thing that we keep trusting and keeps letting us down, keeps breaking, keeps breaking, we keep trying to find something else to patch it up, and it just keeps breaking. Do you know that God doesn't break? Do you know that God doesn't grow tired? Do you know that God doesn't die? Do you know that God is Infinite? He will live forever. Those who trust him will too live forever. This is how great the love of God is. He sent Jesus into this world to show us the brokenness, not only of our own lives, but the lives of everything else around us so that we could see his infinite value and worth and place our confidence and trust in him like Moses did, like Sarah did, like Abraham did. And I hope like you too. We're gonna worship, we're gonna sing, we're going to respond to God right now. We're going to sing songs to God for what he's done. It's a way for us to respond to what he's done. We're going to sing them. We're going to confess sin to God. One of the best ways to show and demonstrate our confidence and trust in God is to just say, Lord, I confess my sin to you. I lay it at your feet. God, my offense in loving other things other than you, that's, that's an offense. I've, I've turned my back on your infinite love and stability and strength and grace And I've loved, I've had this love affair with other things. I've loved myself. I've loved other things that keep breaking down. And therefore, I keep breaking down. You understand that? Confess that to him. We're going to partake of communion. we partake of communion because it reminds us of what Jesus did for us on the cross. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. I encourage you. Sing with us. Confess sin. But don't partake of communion unless you have a relationship with Jesus. Really, it really boils down to communion is being in fellowship, in relationship with Christ. So if you're not a Christian here, I encourage you, partake of communion if you want to confess sin and trust in Christ. For the rest of us, let's remember what Christ has done for us on the cross. That's a way for us to preach to ourselves. And in doing so, ask God to help you to hyperstand, like Moses hyperstood, like Jesus hyper stood, looking to him, confessing your sin to him, trusting in him. Jesus, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that we can look to it and realize that even though what looks like the greatest disasters in our lives, trusting you is always the best path. Because Lord, you are always really trying to divert us from even a greater disaster that often we just don't even see. We confess we most often don't see the disasters. They're just on the other side so God right now we want to trust you and place confidence in you by confessing sin by giving our tithes and our offerings to you by asking you to wash us and cleanse us and helping us to kind of work through things that maybe we need to do and living out in obedience and following you fixing our eyes upon Jesus making sure that there are no idols in our lives nothing else that's sort of propped up higher than or above you Jesus so help us we pray right now worship you as we sing to you as we confess sin as we partake of communion as we give our tithes and our offerings we love you Lord